If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. Uh, We have now concluded our study of the book of Exodus and are starting in Galatians this Lord's Day. Uh, If you've been with us over these last couple years as we've been looking at Exodus, hopefully uh, what you have taken from that at a very minimum is that big picture that we see in Exodus, that picture of salvation. How God rescued His people from their slavery, how He saved them, how He brought them through the waters of the Red Sea, and then how He gave them His law. We talked a lot as we looked through the book of Exodus about how God was taking His people not just out of Exodus, but He was taking Exodus out of His people. And so after God saves His people, after He brings them through the waters of the Red Sea, He then gives them His law and teaches them how to live in preparing to take them to the land of promise. And so we see, following Exodus, how that order began to get confused. How rather than understanding the law in the context of first being saved and delivered by God and then given the law to learn how to live, how there are many who just started to cling to the law. And we see that even in the New Testament. People who held on to the law and thought, well, if I can just follow these rules, I'll be okay. In fact, we see that in the life of the church today. People who rather than accepting God's free offer of salvation through grace by faith, who want to hold on to a set of standards, a set of laws, who become legalistic and think, well, if I can just do these things, I can be good before God. We see in the church today many who think that somehow when they appear before God one day that it will be their works that save them. And this isn't a new idea. In fact, we see this idea plaguing the life of the early church, and it's in this context that Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians. There were churches throughout Galatia that Paul had established during his first and second missionary journeys. We studied that when we walked through the book of Acts together. And as Paul established those churches, as he saw people come to faith and grow in those churches, he had to at one point leave them to go plant churches in other areas. And when he did that, they became susceptible to some false teachers and false teaching. And so now Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia to rebuke those who have fallen into these false beliefs and to encourage them to hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it was a much needed word for the churches of Galatia. I think it's a much needed word for us today. And my prayer is that we would grow from it as we begin this study. And so today we're just going to look at those first five verses of chapter 1, that greeting that Paul gives to these churches in Galatia. And out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to stand, if you would, as I read this text for us. And this is what Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is the Word of God, and it says this. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised Him from the dead, and all the brothers who were with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen you would pray with me. Father, we thank You. We thank that You have shown us Your grace today that we can sit and we can hear and we can listen and we can respond to this Word. You have given us breath. 
that you have given us minds to understand and comprehend. Lord, you have held all this together in this moment, in this day, that we might be recipients of your word. And so, Father, would you protect us during this time we have together from those things that would distract us, from those things that would call our attention away from your word. God, would you do a work that only your Holy Spirit can do? Would you help the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the unbelieving to believe? Would you make the gospel so crystal clear to us today? Lord, would you empower us to respond in repentance and in faith? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm very excited about this study. I've been looking forward to it for some time. Galatians has been a book that the Lord has used richly in my own walk. It's a book that He's used richly in the lives of many throughout the history of His church. In fact, we are here today as Protestants, as those who responded in protest going back some 500 years ago. We're here, we stand on the foundation of that Protestant Reformation. And it was this book, the book of Galatians, that God used richly in the life of a German monk named Martin Luther. And we've talked about Luther, especially last year, as it was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And this was indeed his favorite letter. It was his favorite book of the Bible. In fact, he said of it, The epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it I am, as it were, in wedlock. It is my Catherine, speaking of his wife. He saw how entwined it was to his faith because it was the book of Galatians that showed Luther for the need for reformation in his day. For the need to protest against the Roman Catholic Church of his day. For the need to return to the firm foundation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, that was not only a need unique to Luther's day. That is a need for our day as well. We have many today who would gather in the name of God, who would gather as churches of God, but will speak little of God. They will speak little of His Word. They will focus more on their thoughts, their opinions, their feelings, their how-tos. But they will do little more than open this book and give it a nod before they go on and talk about man's ways and man's thoughts and man's solutions. We need desperately today to return to the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is directly where I pray this study will take us. It was needed in Luther's day and it is needed in our day. And we see before we can understand the book of Galatians, we need to understand a a bit about the context here. There's lots we could discuss, but just in summary so you understand. As I've already mentioned, this was a letter that Paul was writing to the churches in Galatia. These were churches that had been planted during his first and second missionary journeys. And as he left those churches behind, as I mentioned many times, there were others that would creep in and would offer false teachings. And in Paul's day, that came through those that we refer to as Judaizers. The Judaizers were Jewish Christians who felt that in order for a Gentile Christians to fully be accepted into the people of God, that in essence they needed to become Jewish. They needed to adhere to the Torah, to the Jewish law. They needed, for example, circumcision and adherence to all these Old Testament regulations. And if they weren't willing to do those things, then the Judaizers taught, well, they weren't truly part of God's people. We might think of the Judaizers in today's terms as legalists. 
And so they came to these Galatian Christians, these new Christians, and they said, well, listen, we question the authority of Paul. We question whether he's one you really need to listen to to begin with. They question, indeed, whether Paul was truly an apostle. In fact, we see in the Scripture that one of the qualifications for being an apostle was one that needed to have been with the risen Christ. And so they question whether that had ever taken place for Paul. And so Paul, in writing this letter, is beginning by defending his apostleship, by defending his authority, and by reminding the Galatians that the foundation of their faith was not built on the law, but it was built on the gospel of Christ. And that's where our foundation needs to be as well. And so we're reminded of that in the first point I'll put there in your outline. This reminder Paul gives us, point one, that we need to be rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul writes this, Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. And Paul points directly to the resurrected Christ. He's going back to that qualification we read about in Acts of an apostle. He indeed had been with the risen Christ, and he was writing on behalf of the risen Christ. He wasn't writing on behalf of man. He wasn't passing on something he learned from man. He was writing because the risen Christ had radically turned his life around. And we see Paul refer to his testimony many times. And one account of it is in 1 Corinthians 15 where we read this. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now this is what Paul says in reference to his testimony. Now, you know from other studies and other books of the Bible that Paul's testimony was quite dramatic. I mean, there Paul was persecuting Christians, putting Christians to death, standing and overseeing Stephen's martyrdom. He's on the road to Damascus where he's going to imprison and likely kill other Christians. And on that road to Damascus, he has this this dramatic encounter with the risen Lord. But you notice what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15. He doesn't say much about that encounter. What does he talk about? He talks about the, the Scriptures. He talks about how Christ was resurrected. You see, what Paul is doing here, I think, is reminding us that, that, that our faith, that our testimonies, they need to be rooted in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's where we need to be concerned. And we need to be careful. Sometimes in recounting testimonies and thinking about how one comes to Christ or how one shares about how coming to Christ, we, draw, we are drawn towards the dramatic. And so we hear testimonies like Paul's and that road to Damascus. Perhaps you've heard, you've listened to, you've read the testimony of one who had just a, an amazing experience in life and great depths of sin and God miraculously saved them from that. And perhaps you've, you've read or you've heard or you've listened to those things and you've thought, my goodness, I wish I had a testimony that dramatic. I can remember as a young believer, uh, the first mission project opportunity I had, I was 
after my freshman year of college, I went on a summer mission project with uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, much like uh, Cameron Roby from our churches in Gatlinburg in a similar uh, fashion this summer. I was there in uh, North Myrtle Beach is where I went, and, and we heard uh, from one another on that project, there were about 60 of us, we all shared our testimonies. And on one particular evening, a student shared their testimony, and, and it was, I mean, you think about dramatic, it was one of the most dramatic testimonies I've ever heard. I mean, this guy was sharing about just the depths of his sin and the lostness and, and all these things he was involved in. And it was one thing after another after another. And I mean, he was way into it. And I'm thinking, he, he's only up to like the age eight right now. I mean, he just kept going and going and going. And, and it was radical. It was amazing what God had done to save this young man. But I remember afterwards, I was talking to a friend there with me named Todd. And Todd just had this somber look on his face. And I, I said, Todd, what's going on? He said, you know... I wish I had a testimony that was dramatic like that. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, Richard, my testimony is pretty boring. He said, I grew up in church. My parents were Christians. My siblings were Christians. Everybody in my family was a Christian. I I heard the gospel at a young age. I I prayed and asked the Lord into my life at a young age. I've been walking, not not perfectly, but I've been seeking to walk with the Lord all my life up until this point. I, I have a rather boring testimony. Maybe, friend, you felt that way at times. Maybe you've heard someone on TV or opened up a book or heard someone from a pulpit tell you this dramatic testimony. Let me remind you from the Scripture this morning, let me remind you from the words of the Apostle Paul that our testimony is not so significant of the how we came to faith. It's the what we heard. It's not so much about the circumstances and the drama. It's about the substance of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are no less or more saved if you responded to the gospel in the pews of Bloomfield Baptist Church than if you responded to the gospel on the road to Damascus. It is the gospel that has the power to save. And sometimes we put so much focus on the dramatic and the events and all these things, and we're looking to those as if they give our testimony more significance. We're forgetting that the most significant thing about our testimony is that God saved us. Friends, you were no more or less lost than the Apostle Paul was when he encountered Christ. You are no more or less saved now from responding to the gospel than he was. And so Paul, in addressing the Galatians, he will recount some things that happened to him. But first and foremost, he says, he is an apostle, not through man, not from man, but through God and the risen Christ. Paul reminds us that the significance of salvation is not necessarily the events that led up to it but the events that took place in it. He reminds us that for every one of us who's responded in repentance and faith, that we have experienced what was prophesied through Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36.26, where he talked about God removing our heart of stone and giving us a new heart of flesh. He reminds us that the focus of our gospel is not in the, the, the depths of our sin, but it's in the fact that God made us dead to sin. And alive to Christ. In Romans 6, he reminds us we're no longer slaves to sin, but now we're slaves to righteousness. We've moved from death to life. Friends, the substance of the gospel 
should be the substance of your testimony and mine, which is that we who were once lost, we who were once dead, have indeed been found. And we've been made alive. And now God has given us through His grace something we never could deserve, never would deserve. He's given us eternal life in Christ Jesus. We should rejoice when we read the words of 1 John 5 that he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. That is why we rejoice. Friends, there are no boring testimonies in God's economy. There are those who have been redeemed and there are those who have not. There are those who have eternal life through Christ And there are those that we need to go and tell about how they can have eternal life in Christ. We see here that Paul, as he shares, he's he's laying a foundation here to make it clear that his foundation is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And any other foundation will lead a house to crumble. You may think of it this way. Perhaps you've had the opportunity maybe multiple times in your life to go out there and go looking at houses, seeking to, to, to rent or purchase a house. Friend, you can walk into the most fantastic dream home in the world. And, and it can have everything you ever wanted in a home. You could walk in and go, oh, I can't believe this. This just has everything on our list. And if that house doesn't have a firm foundation, then enjoy it while it lasts. Because it's going to crumble. One day you're going to walk in and notice that wall that was painted with the perfect color has a humongous crack down the middle of it. And one day you might ride up to it and find that that foundation is just split completely. If the foundation is not sure and settled and solid, the house will not stand. But if you have a solid foundation, friend, well, that's what you build a house on. And the problem for so many in our churches today is we have built massive, seemingly beautiful homes on shifting foundations. And as soon as the Lord, as soon as Jesus teaches us, as soon as that foundation is revealed, when it's revealed that we've built our house on the sand and not the rock, well, that house then falls apart. My prayer as we go through this study together is that if there is a lack in our foundation that we might be willing to tear the house down to fix the foundation and build the house that needs to be built. The house of faith that God has called us to build that is built solely on the authority of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, we need to be a people and we need to be a church who filter every decision, every conversation, every thought, every desire through the Gospel of Jesus. We need to abandon constantly talking about how we feel or what we want and root our lives in the Gospel. It is the only thing that will last. And is the only foundation that God has given for His church to be built on. He makes that clear. He also makes clear through Paul in this letter, point two, that we need to be committed to the gathering of God's people. 
It's easy to overlook these greetings, but, but if we take time, we learn so much. Notice verse 2 here. Paul says, And all the brothers who are with me, again, he's establishing his authority. He's not some lone ranger out there. They're brothers in the faith that are with him as he writes this letter to the Galatians. And notice who it's to. To the churches of Galatia. Now again, this is so easy to overlook, and I see it happen all the time. I've had conversation after conversation with people about the nature of the church, about the fellowship of believers. I believe that we need to gather together. I believe that if you're a member of Bloomfield Baptist Church, now this is going to sound crazy, I believe if you're a member of Bloomfield Baptist Church, you should actually gather with Bloomfield Baptist Church. I don't think it makes any difference or has any significance if you're on the membership role of a church and you never gather with that church. It doesn't make any sense. And so I've had this conversation with people in our community. I've had this conversation with others. And sometimes the pushback I'll get is, well, pastor, well, where, where does it say in the Bible? Show me the verse that says you have to be a member of a church. Imagine this for a second. Anybody here like hate orns? Okay. For those who are awake, anybody like hate orns? All right. I like hate orns. Imagine you go to Haydorn's and there's always that, you know, which door do you go in? There's no clear line. But imagine you're there and you're about to go up and somebody walks in. They've never been there before and they start looking around and kind of perusing and they look at you and say, hey, uh, n- none of these donuts is labeled sugar. Can you tell me which one has sugar in it? All of them have sugar in them. I I don't know how to make a donut, but I imagine you put sugar on a pan, put it in an oven, and a donut comes out. I mean, a donut is sugar. That's what it is. Now, how foolish would it be to walk in and go, which one has sugar in it? Friends, which verse talks about church membership and church fellowship in the church? All of them. This was a letter written to who? It wasn't written to Fred in Galatia. It was written to the churches in Galatia. It was meant to be received by the churches in Galatia. It was meant to be received much like we're receiving it today. Someone would present this letter. Hey guys, let's gather together. Let's get the believers together. Let's fellowship together. And let's hear what God is saying to us through the Apostle Paul. And they would gather and they would hear that teaching. The Scripture tells us this is what the early church did. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It says they did that in the context of coming together. Where does it tell us in the Scripture where to come together? All over the place. My goodness, the book of Exodus. We studied that. God gave His Word to Moses to give to who? To the people. They would gather together and they would receive the Word. And today we live in an age of such an individualistic age when so many have neglected to come together with the body and neglected to come together with the believers. We have so many who, who may push back. I've, I've had this very comment from some people, you know, I'll invite them to church. They'll say something to the effect, well, you know, I, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, but I don't love church. Friends, that... I'm not. I'm trying to find the right word to say. That's not a bad word to say. It's. Not. It's like saying, I love my wife. I just don't love Sandy Garwell. Doesn't make any sense. 
This is the church of Jesus Christ. You cannot, according to the Scripture, love, the church, love Jesus and not love the church. Jesus said that, by the way. If you have no love for the brethren, you have no love for Him. How will they know that we are indeed His disciples? By our love for one another. And so the context here is that we gather together and we hear the Word together. Now I understand that many times as we gather together, we preachers, we talk a lot about your need to read the Word. We, we give all these challenges, this encouragement. Listen, go home, read your Bible, read your Bible every day. I, I wrote a newsletter article this week. I'm sure everybody read the newsletter this week. And when you did, you probably noticed in there, I encouraged everybody to read through Galatians. In fact, I encouraged us as a church to read through Galatians each week. It's six chapters. It works real well. You can hear me yell about it on Sunday, and then Monday through Saturday, read a chapter a day, and then come back, I'll yell about it on Sunday, and just keep going. And do that through the study. It's important for us to read God's Word. The Scripture says this. Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who does what? He meditates on God's Word day and night. The Scripture admonishes us when we won't spend time reading the Word. But here's where we need to be cautious. It's not sufficient as a Christian to only read the Word on your own. We need to. We are called to come together with the brethren, with brothers and sisters in Christ, and to hear the Word together, and to talk about the Word together. The very context of this letter is it's given to the church as they gather for their encouragement and admonishment and edification. And friends, we need to receive it as such today. And we need to gather here for worship and hear the Word we need to gather with Christians and talk about the Word. That's why we offer Sunday school classes here. It's a great opportunity to gather, not just hear, but, but discuss and talk about and ask questions about the Word. You, you need to get together with other Christians and talk about the Word together. Friends, you realize that, that, that should be a core of what we do for, with other believers. And yet, just think about the conversations that we so often have with other Christians. How was your week? Did you see that game? How are things going? How so-and-so? I've got a prayer request, i.e., let me gossip for a while. And so often, those conversations aren't about the substance of God's Word. Brother, sister, I, I was reading this passage. Can you give me your thoughts on it? I was reading this and I was convicted of this. How, how have you dealt with this? Do you, do you, I, I'm confused about this. Do you know what this means? Have you ever read this? Have you ever thought about this? Now, it's not those conversations are absent, absent here. I, some of the most encouraging conversations I've had with many of you have been in these hallways about Scripture. Yeah. We need to have more of those. God's Word was given to the church for the edification of the church. And when we remove it from that setting and we just take it and we decide we're going to be Lone Ranger Christians, we're just going to read it on our own, study it on our own, do it on our own, then friends, we, we're close there. We're, we're in dangerous ground. Because many have done that very thing and they've fallen into false doctrines. That they are massive cults today that started that way. Well, less than 200 years ago, a young man named Joseph Smith got frustrated with the church in his day. He decided he would be a Lone Ranger Christian. He decided he would figure it out on his own. And he was led deeply astray. And at this point, 
The Mormon church has led millions astray. And we'll get to more of that next Lord's Day as we look at false gospels. And it's not just that we're susceptible to false teachings, it's also that we're more susceptible to grow weary and just give up because there's no accountability. That there's no encouragement there from the body. God intended us to receive the Word together. Surely we need to study it on our own, but we're meant to receive it together. And we need to be committed to gathering with God's people. And then point three, Paul reminds us here that we need to be... That Jesus delivers us from sin. We need to be reminded that Jesus delivers us from sin. Verse 3, he writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. That These two words, grace and peace, are two of the most significant in the New Testament. Paul uses them over and over because they're so important. That that word grace... Well, it's positional. It's the Gospel. It tells us that by the unmerited favor of God, we have been saved. That's the Gospel. That the Gospel is not that God looked down from heaven one day and He saw you or me and we were doing so great that we turned His head and He said, you know what? I think I'll save Richard. No, the Gospel is that while we were yet sinners, Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His love toward us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we see His grace, His unmerited favor. Ephesians 2.8, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And then we see the practical. The peace is practical. It's what we experience now that we've received this grace. It's the result of the Gospel at work in our life. For now through the Gospel, we can have peace with God. Consider the weight of that for a moment. I mean, have you ever had a relationship this side of eternity on this planet where, where you weren't with pe- at peace with someone? And there may be some folks you don't care to be at peace with, but let's, for the illustration here, somebody you wanted to be at peace with. Someone you loved and cared about. Someone who, if you could go back in time, you'd go, ah, oh, if I just hadn't said it that way, or if I just hadn't done that thing, or if they hadn't said it that way, or they hadn't done that thing. And you're just longing in your heart. I, I just want to be at peace with them. And maybe through a process of conversations and repentance and forgiveness, you're able to restore that relationship. You're, you're able to be at peace. Oftentimes when that happens, we recognize that, that we're all sinners, that we've all fallen short. That even if we look at a person and say, well, you did most of this, we're all responsible for some of it. And so as two sinners kind of coming to the table here and working through their sin to, to, to get back to peace and reconciliation. But when we talk about peace with God, we're talking about a perfect, holy, righteous God. And we're talking about depraved, sinful man. And friends, there is nothing we can do on our own, in our own effort, that deserves us to have peace with God. That earns us favor with God. But God, through the riches of His grace, He's offered us peace. He's offered us reconciliation. The God who knows the desperate wickedness of our soul and our heart put His perfect, righteous Son on the cross to die for your sin and mine. And friends, if that's not a truth that should overwhelm us, and we see it here just in these introductory remarks, we, we have grace, and through that grace now we have peace 
with God. The positional and the practical. And that leads us to the purpose of this Gospel. It's to deliver us from the present evil age. Now I realize for many of us, we always feel like we're in the present evil age. You know, we say all the time things like, well, I just can't imagine it getting much worse. I would imagine that Christians in the early church who are about to be marched into the Colosseum and see their loved ones ripped apart by animals, I'm pretty sure they probably were saying, I can't imagine it getting much worse. From the time of the fall in the garden until the time that Christ returns, we are living in this present evil age. Where there is an enemy, where there is wickedness, where there is sin, where there is a fallen world. And what Paul writes here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that it is the Gospel that not only gives us peace, it is the Gospel that delivers us out of this present evil age. Well, what does that mean? I mean, we're still here. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I, I still deal with the consequences of sin in this world around us. That the day you become a Christian, you don't get a special newspaper and open it up and go, oh, well, everything's perfect today. Turn on the news, it looks like another perfect day. And it's, you know, it's only 9 o'clock. What are we going to do? Everything's perfect. No. And that's why we see this, this tension in the Scripture, and I believe it's in this passage, that positionally, Christ's death on the cross has delivered us from this present evil age. And so Jesus' death on the cross was fully sufficient for all of your sin. He died for you to have life the glory of the Father. And so He has delivered us. He has saved us. In other words, there's nothing more Jesus needs to do to guarantee you and I eternal life. Jesus didn't die on the cross for part of your sin or some of your sin. He died on the cross for all of your sin. So you leave here today, you mess up, you do something wrong, Jesus' death covers that. So positionally, He's delivered us, but at the same time, He is delivering us daily. This is the sanctifying work of the Gospel. This is the picture of Israel in Exodus. They were saved from their slavery. God didn't keep saying to them every time they missed up, well, I'm just going to send you back. Well, I'm just going to send you back. No, they were saved. They were rescued from their slavery, but they still struggled with sin. God took them out of Egypt, but He was doing a great work to take Egypt out of them. And the same thing's happening in our lives. He has indeed positionally delivered us, and practically speaking, He is in the process of sanctifying us. And friends, this is the hard work. This is the daily grind of the Christian life. And this is where so many in exhaustion grow weary and grow tired. Jesus says that we are in the world, but we're not of the world. We are saved from the world, but we're left in the world until He comes back to the world or He takes us out of the world. And that day-to-day grind, that day-to-day of mortifying the flesh, that day-to-day of battling sin in our lives, that's where more than ever we need the Word of God That's where we need this reminder daily of the significance of Christ's death on the cross. This is where we need the accountability of other believers. And this is where we need to be reminded it's a long haul. It's a long process. You might think of it this way. The Scripture says in Ezekiel that God removes our heart of stone and gives us a, a heart of flesh to believe. 
Now think about that in terms of someone who actually has a, a physical heart transplant. Someone who has a weak heart, there's lots of things they can't do because of that weak heart. Perhaps they, in their youth, enjoyed running, and maybe they say, you know, I'd love to run a marathon, but i got a weak heart, I can't run a marathon. They're on their deathbed, they're, they're not going to go run a marathon. But they go through that procedure, and they get a new heart. And imagine if that person, upon waking up from that surgery with that new heart, suddenly said, alright, I'm going to go run a marathon tomorrow. <laughs> it doesn't work that way, does it? No, there's rehabilitation, there's exercise, there's growth, there's maturity that must come in their life. They've got to build up their body to respond to this new heart before they can ever consider doing something like that. And the Christian life's the same way, friend. We don't become a Christian and then the next day everything's perfect. You don't become a Christian and the next day, well, I never want to sin again. Well, gosh, I remember how it was yesterday when all I wanted to do was sin, and now I never want to sin again. No, we're still tempted. We still struggle. But the message from the Word is not to grow weary and to be reminded that God not only has delivered us, He is delivering us. And then He goes on to say, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. What's that teaches? It teaches us, friends, that God's will for your life and God's will for my life is that we put sin to death. And it means we need to stop making excuses for sin in our life. And we need to stop thinking of ourselves as the exemption. We need to carefully heed the warnings of Scripture. And Pastor Nick did an excellent job last Lord's Day of taking us to the Word in some very practical ways from the book of James. I think one illustration he gave was that well, we need to be careful when we say things like, I'm just going to speak my mind. <laughs> Because that, that is very much code for, I'm just going to sin right now. And you know what the Scripture says about speaking your mind? It says, even a fool is considered wise when he keeps his mouth shut. There's a biblical way to say shut up, and God does it. He said there are times we just need to hold our tongue, not speak our mind. The flesh desires to speak the mind. But the Spirit compels us to be conformed into the image of our Lord Jesus. My goodness, think about the Gospels. Think about the number of times that people heard hurled insults and heresies at our Lord. And He said so often, little to nothing. Think of how many times they demanded answers from the perfect, righteous Son of God. And He held His tongue. We would do well, friends, to apply that to our lives as well. And what we see here is this daily grind of, of battling sin, of getting in the Word, of, uh, of being conformed into the image of God. This is the will of God. So many times we ask that question, I wish I knew what God's will was. Friend, here's the answer. His will is that you repent of sin. His will is that you be made more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. What's going to help you to do that? Time in the Word or time been watching Netflix? But what's going to help you to do battle against sin? Opening up the Word, which is that mirror, we talked about that last week, that shines in your face and shows you who you are and what you need to repent of? Or getting on social media and just flipping through page after page after page after page. You know, there is no biblical admonition that says, ye who are weary, zone out. 
We find rest in so many things that starve our souls. And the Scripture gives us a better way. It says this is the will of God, and as a result, it brings glory to God. And so friend, is your life, is my life, is our church, are we bringing glory to God today? Are we battling sin today? Are we doing the hard work of the daily grind to be made more and more into the image of Jesus Christ? Are we making excuses for sin? Are we enabling others to sin? Are we taking sin lightly? The book of Galatians reminds us that we need to take sin very seriously. And it reminds us that Christ indeed paid for sin. It's a book that God used 500 years ago in the life of a German monk, and I pray it's a book that God will use in our lives today here at Bloomfield Baptist Church. And I pray that as we study this book, that God will remind us that we need to return to the firm foundation of the Gospel. And if we find that there's any other foundation of our faith, I do pray that we would be willing to tear the house down and rebuild it on the foundation of the Gospel. And so we're going to close this morning about singing about that very truth of the solid rock that we find in the foundation of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This was written back in the 1800s by a guy named Edward Moat. Edward's testimony, not quite as dramatic uh, as the Apostle Paul's, but he was raised as a, an innkeeper's child, essentially. He was a bar boy and took care of the bar and served people until at the age of 16 he was radically converted to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He went from being a bar boy to a Baptist preacher. He preached faithfully at the church there, in fact, for, for all of his adult life until one day the church came to him and said they were so gracious for his preaching and his ministry there, they wanted to sign over the deed to the church to him. But he refused and said only this, I only want the pulpit, and when I cease to preach Christ, then turn me out of that. Friends, may, be that, may that be our desire today. That, that we only want the gospel. And when, they, when that we cease to preach that, for God to be done with us and raise up another. It was that motivation that led Moat to write 150 hymns, one of which we're about to sing, which reminds us of this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Friends, if you're building anything on sand today, the call of the Gospel, the call of Galatians, the call of our Lord, is to repent and trust in Christ and build on that solid foundation. So if you'll stand as I pray, and we'll sing this great truth and reminder together. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. And God, I, I pray that You would use Your Word, specifically the study of Galatians, in the life of our church as You've used it in the life of so many in the past. I pray, God, that You would build a, a solid foundation in our lives. And I pray, Lord, for any of us today who, upon reflection with the Gospel in mind, see that, that our house is built on the sand. For any who has built their, their house of faith on their works, on their determination to do the right thing. For anyone who's built their life on anything other than the firm foundation of the Gospel. 
Lord, I pray you would do a work that only you can do through the power of your spirit. That you would call blind people to see. That you would help deaf people to hear. And that you would help hearts of unbelief, those cold hearts of stone. Lord, would you radically turn them to hearts of flesh that believe. God, we trust this work to you. We don't have the words. We don't have the skill. We don't have the ways to do that. Only you can do that work. So, Father, I pray you would. And, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who have responded to the gospel. But perhaps they see some cracks in the wall. Perhaps they see this morning some sin in their life. Perhaps something that they are so afraid that if anyone ever knew about it, they would cast judgment on them and they would be cast out of Your grace. Lord, would You help them to see right now that, that the only call from Scripture, that the only thing we need to do with sin is bring it into the light and repent and confess and trust. God, would You help us to be concerned not so much about our reputation. Lord, help us to be concerned about the eternal state of our soul. And we ask that You would do this work in Christ's name. Amen.